Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. What's up, nerds? It's basketball. Welcome to Horse, a basketball podcast about everything except for the wins and losses. My name is Mike Schubert, and I'm joined, as always, by my trusted co-host, the saying I should have gone second by Blake Griffin to Luca addressing the crowd in Spanish at the beginning of a game, Eric Silver. Eric, how's it going? I mean, same. Like, if someone starts out by talking in Spanish. Also, who knew Luca knew so many languages? Is that just like a European thing? Like everyone in Europe knows like at least four languages? Yes. Yeah. That is definitely a yeah. European thing. But also, I mean, he played in a Spanish basketball league, so that'll do it. And then everyone automatically knows English because that's how Europe rolls. Hey, that's how colonialism works. Mm-hmm. Before we get ready to talk about basketball today, we have to take a little bit of a break and get ourselves prepared, make sure our shoes are all tied and our headbands are adjusted properly in the Teal Memorial locker room. But don't worry, Teal's not. No, she's not. She's alive. She's... Making a list and checking it twice, figuring out if we're naughty or nice, because Teal is coming to town. She is, and we're nice. So you know who else is nice? Well, Santa Claus, I guess, was what I was referring to, but our new patrons. Our new patrons, and we have a bunch. So shout out to Jasmine Laurie May, Anna Hahn, and Katie Ricciardi. Shout out to Veronica Bartova and Lada Bartova, the Menace Sisters, for both upgrading their pledge. A huge shout out to Soph's Lamb Chops for upgrading to the producer level status. I'm also pretty sure they changed their name in between this process. That makes sense. And shout out to our new producer level patron, Steph Curry for three. Hasn't been doing a whole lot of that this year because he's been hurt, but he'll be back in a couple of months. Theoretically, someone is doing this for three for the the Warriors. I appreciate the run of ridiculous names that we have. It's good. It all started out when I forgot that James Harden went to Arizona State and not Arizona. Mm -hmm. And now look at everything else. It's just beautiful. It's fantastic. I love that we have somehow established this culture of care. (laughs) So I think they just like hearing us say those silly stuff that they come up with. Look, that's the goal of Patreon, producer level status, and it's working, and it makes me very happy, and it also lets us pay for rent and eat food. Yay. But shout out to our existing producer level patrons, Brianne Wingate, Adam Hartwick, Ross Papa, Cody Powell, Salvatore Testa, Trust the Process, Samantha Rose, Polly Burge, I worked with Eric's dad, Shooby Dooby Doo, I am Adam Silver, Bilal John. Carolyn Kyle, Godzilla got busy, Dame Judy Dench is my DM, Wouter Vandermaiden, and Madeline Heising. You all make it for three regardless. Whatever the three is. You could have three cups of coffee that day. You could make three paper balls into a recycling bin shots. You could have made like three pancakes and then distributed it amongst all of your hungry younger siblings. You could make three good decisions in a day. (laughs) You could cut one sandwich into three parts. You could make the bed thrice. A lot of different options here. <laughs> Lots of different things. But you're making it. three. You know who else is making three? Today's sponsor, and that's Dashlane. <laughs> 
Dash like keeps you protected from the dark web and bad people on there three different ways. One, Dashlane tells them, no, 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 you cannot touch my stuff. Two, they give you a VPN. And three, they go to the dark web's house and talk to their mom. And then their mom has to be like, dark web, have you been bullying these people on the computer? Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's what, what the copy is. says. <laughs> Dashlane helps you remember all of your passwords, keeps all your online data accessible and safe. With an all-in-one app, they remember and autofill your login information so you don't have to worry about misspelling typos or the one that you had to change six times because it's been four days old, so you have to reset it. And it works across multiple devices, so whether it's your computer, your phone, your tablet, you can have it all together. And you can safely share passwords with friends and family. If your family's bugging you for your Disney Plus password or your NBA League Pass password over this holiday season, you can hook them up with dash lane so you can start dashing through the internet lane haha and help oh, support the show by going to dashlane.com slash horse you can start a 30-day free trial of dashlane no credit card required so that's pretty sweet and then if you like it you can use the code horse at checkout for 10 percent off dashlane premium so go to dashlane.com slash horse do that 30-day free trial don't even have to throw in a credit card see if you like it and then if you do and you want to buy it you can get 10 percent off premium if you use the promo code horse at checkout I heard that one of Santa's reindeer was Dashlane. Mm -hmm. On Dashlane and Dancer yeah, exactly. and Prancer and... VPN. Charles Barkley. There <laughs> Close enough. So now that we are all ready and prepared and our shoes are ready to rock and we're ready to hit the court, we've done our stretches, let's talk about some fun things in the NBA. We've got two fun things. Let's start with one that is something that we have alluded to, but now is a real thing. Get it? Like the news? <laughs> oh, yeah. Full court press. Get it like the news. The NBA is launching a G League team in Mexico. So exciting. Starting in the 2020-2021 season. I'm incredibly excited. I'm very intrigued to see what the team name will be. I wonder what NBA team it will be linked to or if it will be purely independent. Who knows? A lot of the other thing, and I kind of find this funny about the G League, is that some of them don't have like comparable places. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of them are really far away. The Miami Heat has the Sioux Falls Sky Force. Mm -hmm. That's a wild one. Also, what a name. What a what great name. name. Great name. That and the Mad Ants in Fort Wayne, Indiana are probably the two best. Absolutely. So I guess it doesn't really matter, but I, this mm -hmm. is really cool. This I think it's sweet. Going anywhere outside of Canada for actual big four American sports is huge, especially of what's happening with MLB where they pretty much trying to cut all of the minor league baseball teams because they just don't want to pay them. Sports in different places is the way to make other people interested. 100%. Like making an, a big four American sport into an international sport, which the NBA has been pushing so hard, especially with all the international players that's been coming over, like not only from Europe as we've been experiencing over the last like 20 years, but like a big push from Africa, mm -hmm. which I know Af the NBA has been doing all over that continent. Like I'm really excited for South American, Central American, and Mexican players to really get in there. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. I also think it's fun that the NBA continues to use the G League as a way to test out ideas that they have. And one thing that they have thought about is, should we throw a team in Mexico? Should we throw a team in Europe? How's that going to screw things up? Will it be good? And this is just fun. If I'm now ever in Mexico for anything, I would go out of my way to see a G League game. That'd be super fun. I guess my biggest question is, are they going to pull players from Mexico like intentionally or just going to be... 
one of the places that you need to go if you're a part of the G League? A lot of G League teams are a mix of they have a G League draft, but then also a lot of teams just have open tryouts. So they could just have an open tryout and a bunch of people from Mexico City or the surrounding area could come up and try out. And if they're good, they'll make the team. That'd be such a fun story. Just some no name who walked onto the team, kills it, makes it in the NBA, makes millions of dollars, helps his family. That'd be super sweet. Just some guy who's ripping it up in Baja, California, then becomes an NBA star. I think it would be really cool. So I'm very excited. What do you think the team name will be? Oh, man. I am hoping it's something mythological. Okay. I think there's a real opportunity here. Then especially Chupacabras? Like, I was just going to say it was Chupacabras. <laughs> I was going to say Chupacabras. There's always an opportunity to do something that's really attached to the city because like there's no stakes. Something from the Aztecs could also be really interesting. I just hope they don't biff it, just like the Spurs. Well, yeah, I hope that it's not, if it's linked to an NBA team that exists, I hope it's not just a adjacent to that team name. Mm-hmm. Or just literally copying it, like how the San Antonio Spurs have the Austin Spurs. That yeah. would be very boring. Uh, I also could see it being some sort of, I don't know what the state animal or state bird or something in Mexico is, but I could see it being some sort of animal that's important in the city, much like the Pelicans I was going to say the Pelicans don't have a G League affiliate, so that ah. would be perfect. Especially if they do another bird. That would be another what bird. What bird is on the Mexican flag? I'm gonna look that is that up. just the eagle? Yeah, it's an, it is a eagle. Okay. Because it's from, oh, that's really interesting. It's based on an Aztec Indian legend about how the country's capital, Mexico City, was founded. So the Mexico City Eagles would be really cool. That could be cool. That could have a really fun logo. And it's like a, it's a brown eagle and so like the white eagle from Philly. Mm-hmm. So that would also be really interesting. Be very fun, very fun. Mm-hmm. So yeah, NBA going to Mexico City for the G League in 2020-2021. Yes. Mark your calendars. Horse going to Mexico. <laughs> yeah, horse meetup, Mexico City, <laughs> 2020. Catch us there. Other thing that we wanted to talk about in this full court press is something very cool that was announced earlier this week. The Sacramento Kings and the Milwaukee Bucks will be the first teams to participate in basketball games at prisons. The teams are going to be hosting events organized by the Represent Justice Campaign to break down stigmas of individuals impacted by the criminal justice system. Now, I will say at first, when I heard about this, I thought they were going to play a legit game in a prison. I also thought that. And that was super hype and confusing, but they're hosting events there. Each team is hosting one, and that makes more sense. The events make more sense. I thought this was going to be like all those streetball games that are on Alcatraz. Alcatraz. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, they're going to play it at the rock. And I'm like, that's not sensitive. <laughs> so this makes a lot more sense. And I appreciate it. Yeah. So they will be playing outdoor courts. And again, it's just to spread awareness, bring light to the issues that are facing incarcerated people. I think it's really important. I'm glad that the NBA is doing more to step up to fight against injustice. We saw them fall a bit short earlier this year with their dealing of the China-Hong Kong situation. So it's nice that sports are going to get involved in an issue that's really troubling in America. The more and more podcasts I listen to where they give statistics of incarceration rates and the disparity between race and the criminal justice system is staggering. So if you can bring a light to that via sports, which could get people who didn't even know this was a problem to Google it, that would be cool. So I think it'll be fun. I think the games will be really interesting. It's also cool for the prisoners. Like, that's got to be fun to be a part of something special. And It's true. 
I know that like it's hard to think of the way in the United States we think about jailing and prison that like bad people are in prisons, but it's like it's this institution that has a ton of people in it. Like they still need stuff to do. They're right. still humans. So the fact that there is some sort of like participatory thing in here is really important. Um, anyone who wants to read more about that, you should go read The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness by Michelle Alexander. I read that in college and it was amazing. It is this uh, newer book just laying down all of the foundations that you might need to know about the prison industrial complex and how much money people are making from building prisons uh, like that. So it's nice that the NBA is getting involved. Yeah. This is something that we end up talking about in the interview later, but it is interesting that we need like our sports teams to do activism right <laughs> and like has to stand up for, for for domestic and international issues like bonus points to them but i can't believe that it's like the nba who has right. to do this because obviously our representatives won't do anything about uh prison reform mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i don't know what is especially cool about the bucks being one of the teams is that at the event that they're doing in Wisconsin, Sterling Brown and George Hill are going to be there. And Sterling Brown, if you recall, had a civil suit against the city of Milwaukee filed because he was shot with a stun gun in January of 2018 because he parked his car incorrectly at a Walgreens. I think what happened is he just like parked in a handicapped spot just to run in and grab something. And when he came out, there were like eight police officers Mm -hmm. and he was trying to be very nice. It was his whole issue. Thankfully, the charges against him got dropped. I believe the cops were suspended or the thing where they don't really get fired or whatever. They get like paid to not work or some bullshit. But I'm glad that he'll be a part of it. And another cool thing is that Nike is going to be donating sneakers and clothes to the incarcerated players and other participants. But what's shitty is that because of the way the prison works, they have to mail the clothing to their families because the residents cannot keep articles while imprisoned. Right. So that's kind of unfortunate. It's like, how much can you do? It's an institution that it's hard to fight against and fuck all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So glad that the NBA is doing something cool and impactful and hopefully this could raise awareness and achieve what they're setting out to do. Absolutely. And that's what we got for Full Court Press. Get it. Like the news. I do. I do get it. That's they, very good. This is good news. One, two, three. Three, two, one. Three on three. Mike, yes. what are those? Are those jingle bells I'm hearing? Oh, are those, are those menorah candles being lit that I'm very, hearing? <laughs> is, it, is it one jar of oil? Which that's is, lasting is it, eight days? There you go. Yes, it is. To celebrate this holiday season, we are doing an interview later with Andrew Marinus, who wrote an amazing book about the 1936 Olympics, which was hosted by Hitler's Germany and also hosted the first Olympic basketball game ever. So we are going to do a draft. But I think that this is more of like a, a gift-giving celebration. Mm-hmm. The horse winter that actually happened. Uh, draft slash gift-giving Slash three-on-three. Slash three-on-three. <laughs> it's our secret that actually happened. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm very excited to be able to share this with you. Mike, as the person who wins rock, paper, scissors all the time, I would love to request that I, this time, go second, because I have something very special that I want to give you last. Okay, I have something very special that I want to give you last, but I guess I'll go first. It's funny because we recorded the interview yesterday, so we've already talked about an infamous piece of literature in it. And the gift that I present to you today, Eric, is that I have purchased... <laughs> the long-famed children's book that I read growing up cover to cover often. It is a Sports Illustrated for Kids beginner's book called Wacky Basketball Facts to Bounce Around by Sheila Sweeney. I read it, and it's hilarious just because some of the things that the way it's written, they will just say something, and it'll be semi-educational. For example, the court. Lots of games are played on grass or dirt, but not basketball. It is played on a hard court. Can you guess why? 
<laughs> um, well, uh, I think that the ball would bounce better on hard court. Did I get it right? You did. You Yay. got it correct. They also have fun interactive segments like George Marison's hand, and you can put your hand on it to see how big it is compared to yours. That is a very large hand. <laughs> it's scary. <laughs> but what I have done for this three-on-three three is I took the three most interesting things that I learned from this book and found bigger stories about. Okay. So the third most interesting story that I found from Wacky Basketball Facts to Bounce Around was about the first ever professional basketball game. Nice. Did you know that during the first ever professional basketball game, the players wore long tights and velvet shorts? <laughs> no, no, I did not know that. So in 1896, there was a group of men who regularly played basketball in Trenton, New Jersey, which is very close to where I grew up, maybe a 10-minute drive, at a local YMCA. But one day, they found that their building where they played at was unavailable. They couldn't play there, but they really wanted to play. So to get over this, to combat this, they rented out a local Masonic hall. Nice. And decided to charge admission to recoup on the costs. <laughs> thus making it the first professional game to ever take place. There were so many spectators that showed up that it didn't just only cover their expenses, but there was money left over, so each player then earned $15, which back then, a sizable chunk of change, mm -hmm. there was an extra $1 left over by dividing by however many people were there, so they gave that extra dollar to Fred Cooper, who organized it, which made Fred Cooper the, <laughs> the first ever, quote, highest paid player in basketball history. It's very good. Uh, so I thought you were going to say he was the first ever stage manager in basketball history. <laughs> so it's funny that you mentioned him as a stage manager because not only did he organize it, but he also designed that uniform, which <laughs> included the tights and velvet shorts. There you go. So that was the first game. And then two years later, the first league was formed in 1898. There you go. So shout out to New Jersey. <laughs> shout out to velvet shorts. Mike, in exchange... I'm going to give you the thing that you like the most about the NBA. Okay. Which is talking about random amounts of money and why that makes absolutely no sense. Cool. I love it. My thread three is random uh, three fun money facts about the NBA that I'm going to give to you. Uh, this first one is uh, about the most expensive piece of basketball memorabilia ever auctioned off. Oh, man. Can you guess what you think the piece of memorabilia could be? I would assume it is Michael Jordan related. It is not Michael Jordan related, but I like where your head's at. Hmm. It's going to be some big player. You know what? I think you got to take it back even older because mm. the real first big oh, player. Could it be? Could it be the Peach Basket from James Naismith's first game of basketball? You're getting close. Oh. It is James Naismith's first piece of paper that he wrote down the basketball rules. Dang. How much do you think that it was auctioned off for? $25 million. It was auctioned off for $4.3 million. That's a lot of dollars for a piece of paper. It was bought by David Booth, who is a Kansas University graduate. He grew up on 1931 Naismith Drive, just south of the University of Kansas. So, like, Kansas loves basketball because it sees itself as the birthplace of basketball. James Naismith was born in Canada, moved to Kansas, and invented basketball in a Kansas YMCA. So Kansas is basketball frenzy because they see it as, like, theirs. Uh, when asked how much higher he would have been, Booth said, it was getting close. <laughs> 4.5 million, too rich for my blood. Look, at 4.4, I gotta draw the line. 
And now it was donated to the University of Kansas, and it's now displayed kind of like in their basketball shrine that they have there. That's really cool. So there you go. Most expensive piece of basketball memorabilia, $4.3 million for the first rules of basketball. Bonkers. Absolutely bonkers. Okay, second fun story that I learned from Wacky Basketball Facts to bounce around. Let me just (laughs) read you a headline from something written in the Los Angeles Times in February of 1990. Lonnie White writes, quote, Morningside's, so high school, mm-hmm. Morningside's Leslie, Lisa Leslie, scores 101 in one half. Girls basketball, she is initially credited with record tying 105, but game officially ends when opponents refuse to play. <laughs> so Lisa Leslie, WNBA legend, basically the first huge player in the WNBA She went to Inglewood Morningside High School, and on a Wednesday night game against South Torrance, she scored 101 points in just 16 minutes. Amazing. She was trying to defeat Cheryl Miller's record, which had been set eight years prior, of 105, but there was a whole hubbub of a situation. So at the end of the first half, it was 102 to 24. Respectable score. (laughs) 24, hey, you're doing something. You got to put some points on the board. (laughs) Leslie had 101 points in the half. One of her other teammates scored one point. Thank Yes, (laughs) thank you. So what happened is at halftime, they come out after and the other team doesn't show up. Everyone is aware that the record is 105. So what the referees do to try to help Leslie out is they start hitting the other team with a delay of game warning, Mm -hmm. which is a technical foul. So for every minute or so that they didn't show up, they let Lisa Leslie shoot a free throw. So she made four free throws and then got to 105. Right. But then after the team didn't come out for a certain amount of time, they sent everyone home because they realized the other team wasn't bringing anybody out. But Leslie still went home thinking I was going to score 105 and whatever. But the official ruling by the school was that if a team leaves at halftime... You don't play the rest of the game. The game has been forfeit. Right. So it was reduced to her original 101. Mike, I want to hear everything about Lisa Leslie, but can you tell me more about the other team? Oh, yes. That's what I was going to tell you because <laughs> it's very interesting. So South Torrance started the game with only six players. They had to play the final minutes of the first half with only four players because two of their six players fouled out. So it sounds like they're bad at basketball. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it wasn't even just playing against Lisa Leslie and be like, hey, what about this defensive strategy we have, which is where we hit them and do illegal things? I mean, there's only certain ways you can stop Leslie, but also maybe have more than six people show up. So the coach, Gil Ramirez, could not be reached for comment. <laughs> of course, of course. But the official John Lundquist, good dude, said, quote, I allowed Leslie to shoot the foul shots because she was so close to the record. But after review with Southern Section Associate Commissioner Dean Crowley, the game was over at halftime because the coach refused to play. Mm, They tried. So the league that they were in, the Southern Section, recommended disciplinary action against South Torrance's coach. Good. For taking his team off. The dean, Crowley, said, quote, removing a team from the court is a serious violation of our sportsmanship code of ethics. We will contact South Torrance and expect the principal to remove the coach from his duties for the remainder of the season if these reports are true. Absolutely. So what happened? Did he get fired? 
It doesn't say, but the principal of South Torrance was not aware of Crowley's remarks and says, <laughs> as I understand it, the kids were playing as hard as they could trying to stay out there. One of the four had a previous injury and Coach Ramirez was concerned. Okay. The previous injury was uh, her ego from getting dunked on by fucking Lisa Leslie. Morningside's coach said, I don't like to run up the score, but I do like to let my seniors shine once per year. And it was the team's last home game. So he was like, <laughs> yo, Lisa, go off. Listen, you're going to graduate. It's fine. She's six foot five. I'm sure everybody else was maybe five foot five. It's the last home game of her senior year. Like, let her just go. This is one of those things that I wish had happened in the future because mm -hmm. I want to see the Twitter clips of this mm -hmm. or the cut-together mixtape of Lisa Leslie just hurting these 16-year-old girls who were like five foot two who were trying to play. And Cheryl Miller, who was mm. the woman that set the record back in 1982, she gave a quote for this article and said, I know that there, South Torrance's, coach will holler about poor sportsmanship, but the game is to score points. It is a shame that she did not get a chance to break the record. So yeah. look at that. Cheryl Miller wanted her record to be broken. By Lisa Leslie. And I think that's absolutely fantastic. I love reaching out to Cheryl Miller for a quote. That's, that's beautiful. Really solid work. That is some uh, hitting the pavement reporting from Lonnie White. Lonnie there you White go. killing the game. Local reporting still alive. Thank you. Mm -hmm. All right. Mike, I have the, my second fun thing about money in the NBA has to do with hotels. I wanted to do, do some digging on how NBA players stayed at hotels, whether or not they were on away games or they just didn't have an apartment yet because they just got traded. And I came upon this really, really kind of beautiful photo essay from ESPN called Behind the Scenes at an NBA Hotel. Mm -hmm. It followed the Rockets when they were in Portland. They went to Hotel Monaco, uh, which is a really nice hotel in Portland, and what it takes to have a hotel ready for an NBA team to stay there for three nights. Mm -hmm. But the way that I found this photo essay was from an article on hotelmanagement.net. Wow. Because this guy who was writing for hotelmanagement.net covered that article. So I'm going to talk about what he wrote about that essay. And then there's another story that he shares that I need to share with you. Cool. So the highlights from the Hotel Monaco piece from ESPN was that the Hotel Monaco has a special 24-hour room service menu, which has the visiting team's logo on it. Because because it's based on like what NBA players want over the years, what they're craving, what they need before games, after games, and what kind of like crowdsourcing NBA players was that was really interesting. Also, to accommodate NBA players, the Hotel Monaco has 95 inch long beds, Yo. which are one foot longer than standard. Amazing. And the shower heads are of course raised eight inches taller than the standard six feet. That's so cool. So they like have NBA player rooms, I guess. This is like a vendor of the NBA. Next time we're in Portland, we should request an NBA room. <laughs> Just have all of the comically large beds and showers. Well, we would also get the extra large bathrobes with the hatch, which yes. have a giraffe print on them. Oh, my God. God. It is so funny. I don't know if it's for NBA players or just for the extra tall ones. It's so funny. I love it. I love it. But don't worry. That was at the bottom of this article because this guy, he had to tell us two stories about Kobe Bryant before we had to get to the story. Ew. The second story was really funny. He works in the hotel industry. He went to uh, the Best Western Annual Conference, which was in Hawaii in 2016. And remember the 2016, this was Kobe's last season, mm -hmm. and uh, which is very important for this. He goes to the resort's gym, he, he's stretching, and then he looks up, and he runs into Meta World Peace. Oh, wow. And he's just like, oh, pretty cool. And then he says, in fact, it got cooler. 
I walked over to use a piece of equipment near where Meta was stretching, but noticing this, he asked me if I had enough room, and coolly I responded, I'm good, Ron. Oh, no. David, I hate you. You can't call him Ron. That's not his name. I I will only refer to him by his Christian name. Shut up, David. Did he actually put- He literally wrote that. Fuck this guy. He fucked this guy. But here's the thing. It's the opposite of Lonnie White. (laughs) Then he says, anyway, as I started to work my pecs, I look up and I see this. Oh, wow. And it's a photo of Kobe Bryant looking so really pissed. So he took a fucking picture of Kobe? Yeah. What a dick. This he, guy sucks. He took. He said that he had surreptitiously pulled out his phone and snapped the photo. It was also 6.15 in the morning. So, like, he took a photo of Kobe Bryant at 6.15 a.m. What a fuckhead. So he did guy. it, and he's like, oh, I'm so sneaky. But I don't know if you looked close enough at the photo, but Kobe's looking directly at him. With a death stare. Like, Kobe Bryant would beat up this man in Hawaii. <laughs> Just to add this Hilton. Don't take pictures of people. Don't take pictures of people. Don't take pictures of anybody at the gym. Don't do that. Don't take pictures of people. Don't call people the name that they're not. Mm-hmm. You just did a lot. Of, he it was so terrible that I had to share this story with you. Good. We put him on blast. What, what websites are you writing for? Hotelmanagement.net in 2016. Yeah, can't wait till he wins the fucking Pulitzer. <laughs> Whatever, whatever. Okay, let's palate cleanse from that shenanigan. Listen, a present is sometimes a present is giving you things to shit on. But here's something that is just very funny and wonderful. So the first best thing that I learned from Wacky Basketball Facts That Bounce Around is something that took place in November of 1994. It is a team that has had troubles with this in the past. Uh, The Spurs home opener leaves their fans soaked because a firework display set off sprinklers. And by sprinklers, I mean a giant fire hose relief valve. Good. This is good. So their season opener was delayed for 50 minutes when a fireworks display went off in the Alamo Dome and set off the sprinkler system, which drenched mostly fans, but also got onto the court. So the problem is they had all of the sprinklers covered and set to not go off because they knew that they were doing fireworks indoors, Mm -hmm. except for one. And then that triggered (laughs) (laughs) There's so much Texas shit happening here fireworks indoors yes please Mm -hmm. but two this is such like emblematic of that fucking stadium that the spurs play in the bat issues the air conditioner (laughs) breaking and now this we have three stories so it wasn't just sprinklers going off it was a high pressure water cannon good at the back of the stadium good Good. great it shot water at a pressure of 2900 gallons per minute for four minutes They asked Alamo Dome director Mike Abington for comment, and he said, quote, it was a technical malfunction. The response was shocking. (laughs) Yes, you're right. Nailed it. 100%. So there are some videos of this ridiculous situation. So let me show these to you. We also put them on the website at horsehoops.com. There's the cannon. It's so powerful. (laughs) I I know that you said it was a cannon, but it's so powerful. It is absolutely bonkers, and it's all over fans. Then you've got people mopping up the floor and stuff, but mainly it's just fans getting drenched for four minutes. That looks like it's at a water park, Mike. Yeah. And here's a video from the ground floor, and you can see what it looks like just raining oh down. This is like you go to a water park that has those buckets that uh-huh. like pour all over everyone, and it goes, bah, bah, bah. but it's just like continuous. It's like you're in the splash zone. Did they know they were in the splash zone when they got the tickets? I don't think the seats said the splash zone, but they were <laughs> in it for four consecutive minutes. Oh, God. Mike, I got Mike, I got you NBA tickets. You're in the splash zone. <laughs> Make sure to bring your... <laughs> 
It's like a Gallagher show. You need to make sure to have your raincoat. What's great is that the stream initially only hit the crowd, but it gradually went stronger and stronger. So it hit more people and then made its way onto the court. And someone went on the Alamo Dome loudspeaker system. <laughs> Urging fans to stay calm and not to panic, because that's definitely what you want to hear. getting blasted by a water cannon, like, hey, everybody, y'all, just hang out, it's fine. There were also members of the Republican National Convention Site Selection Committee while the mishap happened. I guess they did something during the day and they were going to the game afterwards. They interviewed the Spur president, Jack Diller, about this, uh, just the whole situation and the fact that it was not only a game, but the RNC was there. And he said, quote, we obviously regret that this situation occurred. <laughs> the quotes in this article, phenomenal. I know all of the bushes personally. We did not try to soak them. That was on us. Finally, they interviewed some fans about it. They were in higher spirits. They realized it was silly and ridiculous. They were just happy to be there. One in particular said, the water was pushing us. We were forced all the way down the aisle. This will be the most memorable game. We were laughing all the way down. I'm glad they were laughing. Shout out to that guy. <laughs> And they're like, oh, I did look at my tickets and I saw in really fine print. It did say Splash Zone. So that one's on me, honestly. Potential water slide. <laughs> All right, Mike. Thank you for letting me go last because I think you're really going to enjoy this. Uh, Mike, I want to tell you about ranking basketball players by the amount of money they are on Cameo. Oh, I saw this on Reddit. Yeah. yeah. You know what? Do you know what Cameo is? Yeah, they reached out to me specifically to try to get me on there because of Potterless. You should do it. No Free way. Free money. It's gross. It's kind of like cutting out the middleman of celebrity. It's like basically you pay someone to say whatever message you want within reason, and they can or cannot, something that when I, was, I dug into Cameo a little bit more, they can or cannot choose to take your request and then you pay them the amount of money depending on how popular or how famous they are. I think the amount of money that it would have gained from using Cameo is not worth the amount of respect that I would have lost for myself and I think other people would have lost for me. But I wanted to tell you just about this from this Reddit post how expensive some of these people are in Cameo. Mm -hmm. The most expensive basketball player is Ron Artest, a.k.a. Meta World Peace. Wow, that is not who I would have guessed. They pull uh, $1,000 a Cameo. The second most expensive player is Ben Gordon. Ben Gordon? At $700. So zero people have done that. Who gives a shit about Ben Gordon? I, I, I don't know. There has to be a reason why the money is so high because he is more expensive than Gary Payton at $625, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar at $500, or Vince Carter at $300. Why is Vince Carter doing this? Vince Carter's making millions of dollars currently. I don't know. For a retired player, I can kind of get it. But- Vince, Car what are you doing? You're making at least two million this season. And then he's going to be, yeah, I don't know. People do stuff just so that they could have some more money in their pocket. I guess it's interesting because we talk about this sometimes. It's like how much money is worthwhile. Like, what is the biggest difference between $5 million and $10 million? Or, in Vince Carter's case, what's the difference between $5 million and $5 million 1,000? Exactly. Like, yeah. ugh. Uh, well, interestingly, though, uh, Vince Carter is the same amount as the professor from <laughs> from And One Street Fall. That I support. That's good. He's at $300, and who's more than Mo Bamba at 275 Dwight Howard at 200 or Rick Barry at 150 Okay, well, Rick Barry sucks. Mo Bamba, the best thing about him is the song that is titled after him. Yeah. 
And Dwight Howard was bad for the past decade <laughs> about that until LeBron was like, hey, what if you were good at basketball again, Dwight? But Mike, I really wanted to see the most value that I could get. And uh, there is someone who I think really stood out to me, who is Darius Miles. Mm -hmm. Darius Miles, a former Clippers player from the really bad Clippers era, and you can get it for $20. And I really wanted to kick this around. So, Mike, here is Did you actually? Oh, no. Mike, oh, I, got you, I got you a cameo of Darius Miles. Oh, my gosh. What's up, Mike? This is Darius Miles. Please don't give up on the Knicks, and I got a strange feeling that something good gonna come very soon. It's really interesting the way he's like, hey, just like tell me what the message he wants to be. I'm like, hey, my friend Mike is a Knicks fan, and he's sometimes he gets sad by how bad they are. So I wanted to see what he would do with that, and that's what he came up with. That's great. So there that's you go. very fun. Merry holidays, Thank Mike. Thank you for Merry Holidays. <laughs> see, now, did you see why it was worth it for me to it's go It's very ask? good. I there get it, go. for sure. Well, now that you have given me this gift, I want to show you. I ordered something for you slash us to put up in the Multitudio no. that did not deliver, and I'm leaving in five hours That's to fair. go back to Texas. So we'll be chilling in my apartment, but I want to pull up an image of what I got for us. I will say that this was a Hanukkah miracle because Darius <laughs> Miles had four days to do it and he did it in two. Ooh. So a real Hanukkah. I literally got this at 1130 last night <laughs> and I got, I'm like, why do I have an email now? And I turned over and I was just like, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Here at Horse, we are no strangers to the players that we absolutely love and adore. And there's a really great artist that had an awesome Black Friday sale. I got a couple different art pieces mm -hmm. and one that I got for us that we could put in our Multitude Basketball Shrine in the Multitudio is from our favorite player who you might think is Shaq, but is actually not Shaq. It's Sue Bird. Oh, that's actually so beautiful. Yeah, so I'll put a picture of it up on Who's the, the artist? page. So the artist is Ryan Simpson. Mm. You can check him out on Instagram at rtsimp. It's the same name as his website, rtsimp.com. But he's shut down all his orders because he did a big Black Friday thing mm. and then shut it down so that he could get everything delivered by Christmas. It's this really awesome image where it's all pink in the background. She's got her green storm jersey on, and she just looks very powerful. Gotcha, and it's Sue Bird. And it's a limited run. They He only made 25 of them. So oh, we have one of yeah. the 25. Let's go. Yeah, so we'll get that up in the Multitudio and frame it and put it with our existing basketballs and Multitude custom jerseys. So, yeah, that beautiful. was my Christmas gift to you this year. Thank you. And you can find uh, Darius Miles on Cameo. <laughs> <laughs> so now we move on to a very special interview that we have with the author of Games of Deception, the true story of the first U.S. Olympic basketball team at the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Germany. It's Andrew Marinus. Andrew, how's it going? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be on this podcast with you guys. I know it's going to be fun. Yeah, I'm really excited too, especially because of the subject being the 1936 Olympics, because I had a childhood basketball book when I was growing up in New Jersey that had a <laughs> bunch of fun facts. It was called Wacky Basketball Facts to Bounce Around. Uh -huh. I'm glad you have the real title because mm -hmm. we've been talking about this mythologized <laughs> book for so long and now we actually know what the title is. <laughs> so in Wacky Basketball Facts to Bounce Around, it talked about the 1936 Olympics saying it was the first time that basketball was in it. And it mentioned that because basketball at that time was was played outdoors that when it rained, it was mud. So I'm very excited to talk to you to learn a little bit more than just this two-sentence <laughs> blurb I got in my book and then also eventually read the entirety of your book to learn all about it, the things that you couldn't talk about in a children's book about <laughs> basketball. I love it that that book that you had when you were a little kid has sort of, you know, inspired the direction of your life in some ways. And, you know, I was the same way when I was a kid, um, primarily only sports books. My grandfather subscribed me to a 
Green Bay Packers and the Milwaukee Brewers newsletter. I mean, that was the reading I did. Kids these days have such great books to choose from, but for me, it was mm-hmm. it was sports newsletter. So it was all my reading as a little guy. Already now, you started out by saying kids these days and then said a positive thing after it. <laughs> and then before, you were like, I'm so glad we're going to talk about Hitler's Germany. All right. <laughs> kids these days. Yeah, get off my lawn. Kids these days always with their informative, well-researched books, exploring parts of sports from history and different perspectives. Who the hell do they think they are? I know. Yeah, exactly. It's ridiculous. I got the chance to like house about 100 pages of the book over the last few days because I'm so interested in the topic. But can you uh, give like a brief summary of everything that you hit? Because my understanding is that this book really goes in a bunch of different directions when it comes to basketball 1936 and where the United States and Europe is at this time. Absolutely. So I tried to write a book that would be interesting to people who love basketball, but also people who could care less about basketball and to put the story of this Olympic basketball team into the context of the times, you know, what was going on in the world at that time. And so the book deals with, I would say, three main threads. The first is the invention of basketball and James Naismith's story, who he was, how he came to invent this game. To me, it's amazing to think about In December of 1891, there was a world without basketball. And then the very next day, there was a world with basketball because (laughs) this student stayed up all night uh, inventing a new game. And then it was played. And then within 45 years, it spread from that one YMCA school in Massachusetts uh, all over the globe to the point that it could be played in the Olympics in the inventor's lifetime. And Naismith was able to go to Berlin to see his invention debut in the Olympics. Second thread in the book is the creation of this first U.S. Olympic basketball team. Like, how did they do it? And it was very different than today where players would try out as individuals. What they did then is they had a tournament and whichever two teams advanced to the championship game of the tournament were combined to become the U.S. Olympic basketball team. And one of them came from an oil refinery in the middle of Kansas, a small town of McPherson, Kansas. And the other team came from Hollywood. You guys worked at Universal Pictures in Hollywood, uh, which I thought was a pretty interesting um, story, the backgrounds of both of those teams. And then the third and what I consider the most important thread of the book is the state of the world at that time, what it was like in Nazi Germany for these athletes, but also for the people and especially the Jewish people of Germany at that time and how that compared to racism in the United States and the fact that the Nazis even looked to the United States to come up with the Nuremberg Laws. When they passed the Nuremberg Laws defining who was Jewish and defining how much blood you know you had in you, uh, whether you were Jewish or not, they had looked for the most racist laws in the world as they were coming up with their own laws, and they found them in the United States. And so I draw those parallels as well. I think the way that you're able to thread all of these ideas together, especially that third one as you tie the Jews in the United States in 1936 with the uh, Jim Crow laws and the discriminatory practices against black people at that time, especially when you're talking about basketball, all of the people mm-hmm. who are on the 1936 Olympic team are white because they're the only people who are really allowed to like get a shot to be on the team and participate in that tournament. Yeah, there was a lot of talk heading into the 36 Olympics about how uh, whether Germany was going to allow Jewish athletes to compete for their Olympic team, you know, and there was pressure from the United States to allow that to happen. And so they made a big show of inviting Gretel Bergman, who is a great um, high jumper, uh, to come to the German Olympic trials. And everyone sort of suspected this might be a sham. And it was, you know, she was dropped from the German team, even though she was one of the best high jumpers in the world, right after the United States um, got on the boat to Germany, after it was too late for us to protest. And yet, at the same time, the United States wasn't letting 
uh, African-American players teams try out for the Olympic basketball team. It's interesting when you think about the 36 Olympics, think about Jesse Owens, and there were a handful of other black track stars and boxers in those Olympics, but they all competed in sports that were individual sports. Yeah. And all the team sports, you know, t- entire teams tried out. I mean, you read about the boys in the boat, that was the University of Washington's rowing team. Mm-hmm. Basketball team was two entire teams, and the American Olympic officials weren't going to let entire black teams uh, compete in the Olympics. Yeah. yeah, this team is super white. I have the roster pulled up. Yeah. Oh boy, some of these names. <laughs> oh, these Willard guys are... Schmidt, Jack Raglan, Donald Piper, also Frank Lubin, who I can only assume is related to Hal. Frank Lubin was a six foot seven, like giant Lithuanian man. Mm. He was so bad at basketball. <laughs> no, no name better takes the cake than the captain, though. Joe Cephas Fortenberry. <laughs> Joe Fortenberry, man. Yeah, you might make fun of Joe Fortenberry's name, but you would not have done that in person. Like this guy was a, a bare knuckle brawler uh, in West Texas. And in his town back in the 1920s and early 30s, each town sort of had their champion teenage boxer and they would uh, challenge each other to fight. And one time a boxer came to Happy Texas to take on Joe Fortenberry. And it was at night. Everybody pulled up their Model Ts and shined the headlights, you know, into a circle. This other guy shows up from the other town and he sucker punches Joe Fortenberry before Fortenberry even gets out of his car. Fortenberry, being the tough guy that he was, punched back with his left hand before he had even gotten out of the car as well and knocked the guy out. And before, <laughs> without saying a word, drove away. I mean, like this was a tough guy. He'd knock you out without speaking to you. He was considered the first basketball player ever to dunk a basketball. And I guess it's kind of hard to like, how do you prove that? But he was definitely the first player ever to dunk at Madison Square Garden. Oh, and yes. you guys know how New York media is. If it's the first time it's happened in the Big Apple, it's like it's the first time it's happened anywhere. So That's correct. Uh, 100% was, accurate. That's just true. That's, <laughs> That's the true, truth, right? So there was a reporter for the New York Times who was trying to describe this unusual shooting motion uh, in his article the next day. And he said it looked like a diner customer dunking their roll in coffee. And that's where that's the term amazing. dunk comes from, oh. from this uh, first U.S. Olympic basketball team from Joe Fortenberry. So, you know, pick on his his name all you want, but <laughs> he'd beat you up and he'd dunk on you, too. So Yes, he <laughs> would. He would destroy me. Mike, yeah. this guy would tell you to take it outside. Yeah, yeah. and I would have to respectfully decline again. It's true. One more on the topic of names, one name stood out in front of all of them. And there are some many good names. Adolf Hitler. Uh, yeah, it was Hitler first. Number one first, then Gobbles right after that. But third, <laughs> can you tell me more about Jimmy Needles? <laughs> Because the limited the details that I've gotten about him, Mike, here's what I know about him. Yeah. Jimmy Needles was the coach of the t- of the U.S. team. He also drank 25 cups of coffee a day. Not enough. Not enough. <laughs> and his players hated him. So <laughs> he, <laughs> he was the coach of the Hollywood side of the team. And because they won the U.S. qualifying championship game, he was named head coach of the U.S. Olympic team. But he had only been the coach of the Hollywood guys for a matter of weeks. They had played their entire regular season in the AAU without a coach and they were doing just fine like they were the best team in the country without a coach and then this guy Jimmy Needles was out of work there is a sports columnist for the LA Times named um, Braven Dreyer and he was sort of feeling sorry for his buddy Jimmy Needles and hooked him up with the team at Universal and they said well we can't pay him but he can come along and be our coach the next thing he knows he's the head coach of the U.S. Olympic basketball team and his players resented the fact that he was there and then they really didn't like him when um, the way that they played the tournament, you were only allowed to have seven guys in uniform for any game at the Olympics. That's the Americans ridiculous. had 14 players on their team. 
So they basically alternated which games that the guys would play in. And because Spain forfeited their game against the United States in the first round, because of all things, the outbreak of the Spanish Civil War, they ought to go back home to Spain. <laughs> uh, it, it threw off the alternating aspect of the U.S. team. And so the guys that got to play in the gold medal game were the ones from Kansas who hadn't even won the U.S. qualifying tournament. And so all the Ooh. L.A. players were really pissed off and they went to Needles the night before the game demanding that they get to play, but uh, he, he didn't really advocate for them. <laughs> so Jimmy Needles wasn't a beloved figure by these guys, and they kind of diminished him in terms of his, his basketball abilities. But he went on to become the athletic director at the University of San Francisco and hired Pete Newell there, who's a legendary basketball figure. And then they go on mm. to have you know recruit Bill Russell and win the national championship. So he plays a pretty big role in the history of basketball in this country, but wasn't a big name at the time. He's just an unemployed coach and kind of lucked into becoming the first U.S. Olympic basketball coach. It's amazing. Wild, wild. It's funny that you mentioned the teams and switching and alternating because the scores are interesting and the United States scores vary from game to game. One thing I think that's very fun is that when a team forfeits, the official scores listed as two to zero. Like, <laughs> right. Oh, we got to make it one basket. It's, what it's because there was no shot clock. So one team exactly. scored and then they just held the ball. They could. But these scores could not have been entertaining to watch. The <laughs> highest scoring gross game was 56 to 23. Mm. That was the most. And then the final between the U.S. and Canada was 19 to 8. Well, that game was a joke of a game. Oh. So you talked about from your childhood basketball book how they've had to play outside. Um, mm -hmm. Gold medal game was played in a driving rainstorm. And uh, they wouldn't move the game inside. They didn't have a basketball court set up anywhere inside and the Germans said well we play soccer outside in the rain so you'll play basketball outside in the rain and um good thanks Nazis let's <laughs> do what you say that's fine. yeah never a good idea to listen to Nazis and so these were clay <laughs> tennis courts that they had turned into the basketball courts right and they had a fence around the whole thing too because they were tennis courts <laughs> yeah and this the, that sort of like pulled the water even more onto the courts and um the players would try to dribble. The ball just gets stuck in the mud. Players were sliding like in a... I love football games in the snow or the rain. And I think that's kind of what it looked like. The ball became so heavy in the second half that they couldn't really shoot it accurately. And so the American players said that they basically treated the second half like a game of keep away and yeah. just passing it around, trying to run out the clock and get this farce of a game over with. So it was a low scoring game, even by the standards of those times. What's great is my book wacky basketball facts to bounce around has a illustration of this with people trying to deal with a mud basketball in the clay <laughs> tennis courts and everything it's really fun mike can you say the full name of yes. your book but with the colon of andrew's book at the end yes <laughs> so if we were to combine our two novels which are of equal you know <laughs> obviously one children's book and one very well researched expansive nonfiction yeah, epic we, if we were to hybrid them together it would be wacky basketball facts to bounce around the true story of the first u.s olympic basketball team at the 1936 olympics in hitler's germany that would have been a much better title i'm kind of pissed off i didn't do that now listen it's too long for our episode title so you can have that if you really want it <laughs> all right i'm gonna run with it i'll send that to my publisher after this see if they can yeah for the paperback <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> That's extremely good. No, but you know, one thing that relates to what you're saying is, uh, you know, my book is intended for adults, but also for students, you know, and yeah. mm -hmm. one thing I try to do through my books is to get middle school, high school kids interested in reading through sports, which worked for me when I was a kid. And every time I go to a school, I always meet a teacher or a librarian who'll say, oh, they've got this kid who's on the 
basketball team or a football team who never reads books, but maybe they'll pick up this book with the basketball players on the cover. I'm trying to emulate your your wacky sports author there, even through these serious <laughs> books. Now, I, this is a perfect jumping off point here. There was one quote in the earlier part of the book that really stood out. You say very explicitly about the argument that sports and politics just didn't need to come together when they were trying to put the Olympics together. And I'm going to quote your book at you so that you feel edified for that. (laughs) Um, Political considerations related to race, gender, religion, nationality, social status, and sexuality have determined who can play, what they can play, where they can play, and how much they can earn for centuries. I, I why did was it so important for you to explicitly say that in this book right from the jump? You know, you do hear a lot of people say these days that uh, oh, sports and politics should be kept separate. Um, and so, you know, one thing I try not to do in the book is to draw direct parallels or connections between the 1930s and today. You know, because current mm-hmm. events change, and if, as soon as you start to do that, your book looks outdated, right? But I think there are spots where you can sort of make a comment that you can read between the lines, right? So I'm talking Mm -hmm. about what was happening in the 1930s, but I'm also sort of stating to the reader that this is my mindset, you know, and I'm not someone that believes that sports and politics can or should be kept separate because they've never been kept separate, you know? And if you say that they should be kept separate, what you're really doing is expressing a political opinion that is contrary to what the athletes or the coaches or whoever's involved is trying to make at the time. And so if you want to say... um, Sports and politics should be kept separate in baseball. Well, it, it wasn't separate when there was no black players for the first 50 years of the major leagues, right? Or first right. 60 years of the major leagues. It's not separate when women are making so much less than than men in sports. And so in so many different ways in the Olympics, you know, people compete as countries and countries bid on hosting the Olympics. So they're inherently political. They're not even competing as individuals as much, you know, as in other track meets, for example. So I think that they've always been connected uh, you know, if I'm writing for kids, you have an opportunity to help sort of frame their view of the world through what you write, what you choose to write about, what you say in your book. And so I thought that that would be helpful context for them as well as adults. One thing I always enjoy asking anyone that works on a big piece of work, such as a book, was there any particular thing that you wrote or researched that you wanted to get in the book that for whatever reason or another didn't make it in, made it onto the cutting room floor? Listen, we heard enough about Jimmy Needles. What else do you need? (laughs) Yeah. Well, there was one example of that, but it actually did make it in the book. Have you gotten to the, it's just a total aside, you know, it has nothing to do with basketball, but they played a baseball exhibition game at those Olympics as well. Uh, No, I didn't get there yet. Okay. So the Nazis are really working hard to make sure that the United States did not boycott those Olympics because the whole propaganda value would be lost if American media and, and fans weren't there. And so I think they tried to throw us lots of bones. One of those was including basketball in the Olympics. And the other was playing a baseball exhibition during those Olympics at the Olympic Stadium in front of 110,000 people. It was the biggest crowd ever to see a baseball game anywhere in the world. The lights were terrible. They only lit the ball up to about 20 or 30 feet off the ground. So pop-ups would just get lost in the dark. Uh, The German fans had never really seen baseball before. And so they didn't know what to cheer for. Like what was a hit? Was a pop-up a good thing because it went (laughs) high in the air, you know? And so um, they all started leaving after the third inning. Oh, like most baseball players. Yeah, (laughs) right. And the, the biggest ovation of the night came in the seventh inning when the PA announcer announced there were only two innings left 
in the game. And like everyone oh, that was still wow. there went wild cheering that this game was almost over. Further justification that basketball is perfect. Yeah. Baseball is not. <laughs> right. So I thought this was just a funny story. It didn't necessarily fit with my book, but I, I fought uh, hard with my editors to keep it in there. So that's probably the best example I have of something like it's that. It's just four pages of a footnote. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's just in the smaller text <laughs> that goes on. It's yeah. like, hey, my editors didn't want this in, but baseball, yeah. it was bad. <laughs> I should have put a giant asterisk right before that chapter. Right? Absolutely. It's like, this is a baseball chapter. Just like skip forward. My <laughs> we would be remiss if we didn't ask you about the current basketball and political uh, situations that are happening here. Do you see parallels between uh, the research that you did about basketball and its inception and the NBA and politics now? Uh, I guess the main thing I would say is that even James Naismith, always considered basketball to be an international game. You know, he was someone who was from Canada who invented this sport in the United States. That very first basketball game that was ever played was at the International YMCA Training School. There's a sketch made of that first game by a student who is from Japan. That sketch is amazing. I want it as a poster so badly. Isn't it great? Yeah, I mean, it's even got the ladder with the custodian sitting on top so he can pull the ball out of the peach basket. So great. And, so great. and what I think is so cool about that sketch also is it really is evidence of why the hoop is 10 feet off the ground, you know, on every basket, even today, it's only because the running track in that gymnasium was 10 feet off the ground. And that's where they nailed up that first peach basket. Like, so there's nothing more magical about why we shoot at a 10 foot hoop than that. <laughs> so Naismith considered basketball an international game. These 36 Olympics were kind of the international coming out party for the sport being played at the Olympics for the first time. And so I think that's the connection, you know, and the, a lot of what we are hearing about in terms of basketball players and uh, politics right now, the situation in China and um, Hong Kong and those types of discussions, really are you could draw a direct line from Naismith and these Olympics to basketball players and their international opinions uh, today. Yeah, what's unfortunate that we've seen and we've talked about on the show is just the handling of the Hong Kong-China situation was a bit disappointing just because so much money was involved. And you could make sort of a claim of, oh, well, it's not happening in America, blah, blah, blah. So mm -hmm. we've seen the NBA be really good with some elements like Donald Sterling. We've seen it fall a bit short with this Hong Kong thing. So will we stand up for the next thing to come out? Or if yeah. that's going to affect the money, mm -hmm. are we not going to touch it again? So... Yeah, I think so, too. It was disappointing to a lot of people that were you know, really admiring NBA players for the stances they were taking on social justice. But it's also kind of an indication of what's lacking in other parts of politics or society that we have to look to NBA players to make mm. the most courageous stands <laughs> on issues, yeah. right? That a president or um, elected official or a, a CEO of a business that's making lots of money in China, they're not stepping out on any limbs either. You know, so why do we demand that of, of uh, in an NBA basketball player? It's actually, that's a really interesting parallel to the stuff that you wrote in the book. The Olympic Committee was like, yeah, let's just do the Olympics and like, let's just continue to promote white supremacy. It's fine. But there were a lot of ancillary people who were like, hey, maybe we shouldn't associate ourselves with this. And it's like, it's up to the people who are participatory and like no one in the government is going to say anything. Yeah, I think that's a great example. People ask, you know, should we have participated in those Olympics or, or not? And there were individual athletes that had to make that decision because the American Olympic Committee or the president didn't make it for them. No one in any sort of decision-making roles was willing to step up and say we shouldn't go to Germany. And so you had players such as at Long Island University mm -hmm. who had the best college basketball team in the country back then and likely would have made it to that championship game and had a chance to go to the Olympics 
they voted as a team not to participate. Sam Balter, who was the one Jewish player on the team from Hollywood, had to make a decision as an individual whether he would go to Berlin or not, just like Jesse Owens did. And most of these athletes, whatever they felt politically, also recognized this was their one chance to go to the Olympics. You know, and so Sam Balter, Jewish basketball player, decided to go. And he felt like the best way he could refute Hitler was to go to the Olympics and play well and win a gold medal. And even in retrospect, after the Holocaust and World War II, he still said that he was proud that he had gone. And that he knew when he died, his obituary, the first paragraph would say that he was a gold medalist. And he, he was really proud of that. One last question I have to ask you. You're living in Nashville. You had your book party at the illustrious Parnassus Bookstore. A thing that we end up doing when we do live shows in cities that don't have basketball teams, sometimes we try to make a basketball team from scratch. If you could make a basketball team in Nashville, uh, what would the name of that basketball team be? <laughs> well, it would probably be the Bachelorette. Yeah. Nashville has become <laughs> like, the home of every Bachelorette party. Are you all aware of that? Yeah. Oh, yes. yes. We, were, we were in yeah. Nashville for uh, Pod X, and we saw it all over. I think that if you do that, you would have to have the mascot, whatever animal they are, they have to ride around exclusively on one of those lime scooters that have been outlawed from the city. I thought you were going to say one of those beer uh, oh, trikes. Yeah. That, that, yes, like the that beer be that everyone yeah, yeah, needs yeah, to yeah. do. Yeah. The pedal parties. Yeah, yeah. The, the pedal tavern. That, that's the logo would definitely be like a bachelorette party. On all the women party. sitting on a pedal tavern. Yeah. And then the, like the... The thing that they all yell would be like, woo, you know, like that, that's <laughs> yep, what you would yep. yell at the game. <laughs> oh, this yeah. is very good. I would love that. That would be extremely <laughs> good. They could have, oh, they could have special, their alternate jersey. They don't wear it every game, but they could have a bridal gown inspired one. They all, it's just it like has white a sash. And, it's white yeah. and lace. The captain has one that says bride to be and all the other ones say like, it's like friends of the bride. <laughs> it's yeah. very good. Wow, dang, we've got some good teams. The Nashville Bachelorettes. Yeah, this needs to happen. 100%. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so glad. Thank you for letting me ask, ask that question. Thank you. Oh, man. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. And listeners, if you want to check out the book, Games of Deception, the true story of the first U.S. Olympic basketball team at the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Germany, go check it out. You can get it wherever books are sold, Amazon, the internet, bookstores in real life, etc. Gotta love bookstores in real life. They're great. Thank and you. Jeff Bezos doesn't profit from them. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much, Andrew. Oh, this was a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Horse. Horse is hosted by Eric Silver and Mike Schubert. It is edited and mixed by Eric Silver. The social media is run by Mike Schubert. The art is by Allison Wakeman. The music is by Bettina Campomanes. And the website is by Kelly Beckman. Shoutouts to our producer-level patrons, Rand Wingate, Adam Hartwick, Ross Papa, Cody Powell, South Tortesta, Trust the Process, Samantha Rose, Polly Burge, I Work With Eric's Dad, Shooby Dooby Doo, I Am Adam Silver, Bilal Johnson, Carolyn Kyle, Godzilla Got Busy! Dame Judy Dench is my DM, Wouter Vandermaiden, Madeline Heising, So Slam Chops, and Steph Curry for three. You can find us on the internet at Horse Hoops on Instagram and Facebook, and you can find us at Horse underscore Hoops on Twitter, because, as we say every episode, it's because... Horse Hoops charge too much for Cameo. That's fair. <laughs> Who's going to pay 150 for Horse Hoops? <laughs> and then Horse Hoops got banned on Twitter. Uh, our website is horsehoops.com, which is all of our research and the visual stuff you didn't see because this is a podcast. If you want some sweet bonus content, such as us turning three on threes into five on fives, 
over time where we do different audio. I think for this episode, I will read wacky basketball facts to bounce around to Eric like a bedtime story <laughs> <laughs> or other fun things like streams and the like. You can head on over to patreon.com slash horse hoops. Also, uh, before the end of 2019, I'm going to throw up some stuff that we cut from Horace because mm-hmm. we record a long time yes, ev- we did. for every episode of Horace. And I always end up cutting like chunks and I put them just like away. So I'm going to throw up a bunch of them together so you can just hear some other stuff. It usually does Mike telling stories about his childhood. Yep. 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 Or how I grifted my way through an engineering career. Yeah. Any of just stories like that. Um, you <laughs> you know who I would send to the Olympics, regardless of how well they actually know how to play basketball or have done so at, a, at a, any time? Darius Miller, because he knows something's going to come soon. <laughs> <laughs> it is Multitude. I don't know if you knew, but Multitude has a very beautiful new merch website. You can go to multitude.production slash merch and check out the new stuff that we're doing with DFTBA Productions. I don't know if you knew, but we have these sick horse shirts that say, Sup, nerds, it's basketball. Mm-hmm. And there are plenty of new items from all of our other shows like Spirits and Join the Party and Potter Less. Mm-hmm. There's posters and all sorts of fun stuff that you can decorate, and they are perfect Christmas gifts to give. They're Hanukkah things to stuff your menorah-shaped stockings. <laughs> yeah, you nailed it. Put it inside the Festivus pole. Put it in the Kwanzaa basket. Just put a pin right in the middle of a latke. No one will notice. <laughs> and as we round out every episode, we're going to put our hands in the middle and say something on the count of three. So Darius Miles should definitely join in this, so we'll have to say something that he's already recorded of saying. So his full thing was... I got a strange, strange feeling, feeling that something going to come very soon. soon. One, One, two, two three. three. I, I got, got a strange, strange feeling that, that something going to come very soon. Darius, <laughs> Darius Miles Stradamus over here. Hey, I mean, look, Mike Miller's been a revelation. He actually runs plays. It's fantastic. Honestly, though, like, I'm just happy it happened. <laughs> I was very worried that Darius Miles was like, I don't want to talk about the Knicks, even for $20. I don't want to do it. He did it. He made it happen. He recorded a very, very, very short video. I looked it up, and I was like, was Darius Miles on the Knicks? No. Still mm-hmm. going to ask this. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.